The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in the fifth chapter, the 39th verse. The 39th verse in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. In these words we find our Lord and Saviour continuing the series of remarkable and amazing things which he is saying to these Jews who didn't believe in him and who indeed regarded him even as a blasphemer. The subject, in other words, is the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He talks to these people because, as he tells them, that he is concerned that they might be saved, which means that they might be reconciled to God, which means that their sins might be forgiven, that they might have a new nature, that they might be delivered from the condemnation of God's law, and that they might have a hope, a certain hope of heaven within them. His attitude towards them is that as they are, they were lost, as indeed everybody else is lost. They were not peculiar in this. The Son of Man, he says, is come to seek and to save that which is lost. And the whole world is lost. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The whole world lieth guilty before God. Now he says, these things I say that you might be saved. What are these things? Well, these things are about himself. As to who he is. As to why he has come into this world at all. His claim is that he is the only begotten Son of God. That he's equal with God has the same mind and the same will as God, that he has come from God, that God has sent him to do this particular work of saving, and that therefore if men and women do not believe in him, they continue in a lost state, but that believing in him and in his work, they can be saved. But these Jews do not believe in him. And so he is putting his case to them. He says, I don't ask you just to take my word for it. There is other evidence, he says. And he impresses upon them the seriousness and the solemnity of it all. Because he knows that if they persist in their rejection of him, they will not only have to answer to his own words, but they'll have to answer to this other evidence. He's got greater evidence, he says. And that is the evidence that is provided by God himself. And we're looking at the way in which, as it were, he calls his witnesses into the stand. He says, very well, I've stated my case. He's like a barrister. He's made his opening speech. And having made his opening speech and put his case, he's calling the witnesses. First of all, he says, John the Baptist. 
So he's put John in the witness box. And we've considered the witness and the evidence and the testimony of John. And then he says, the works, the miracles. Why don't you believe your own eyes, he seems to say to them. Look at this man whom I've healed. This man who was known to you, sitting there at the pool of Bethesda. Why don't you believe the evidence of the works, the miracles? He puts them into the stand. And then he goes on, as we saw last Sunday night, and says that he's got even a much higher and greater evidence than this. Indeed, all these evidences come eventually from this quarter, God himself, and the Father himself which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And you have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent him, ye believe not. And we've considered that. What right have these people to be arguing with him? What right have they to be the, the guardians and the stewards of the mysteries of God as over against him? What do they know of God? Have they ever heard the voice of God? He's not only heard the voice, he's come from his presence. Have they seen the shape of God? Whosoever seeth me who hath seen me, he says, hath seen the Father. And so there again he leaves them without answer. But still he doesn't stop at that. They might say very well, when did we have an opportunity of hearing the voice of God in that way that you've been describing? Very well, says our Lord, in effect to them, I haven't finished. I call my next bit of evidence, the scriptures. Now, this was very vital, because these Jews boasted in their possession of the scriptures. Some people would translate this verse in this way. Ye search the scriptures, you make a habit and a practice of doing so. Well, it can't be proved one way or the other. It may be that or it may be this. I take the view that the authorized version is right and that it is indeed a command. It's the indicative. Here it is. Search the scriptures. It's an imperative rather than an indicative. But both things are true. They did read their scriptures. But as I want to try to show you, the trouble with them was that they didn't search them. There is a difference between reading them and searching them. However, the point is at the moment that our Lord brings this evidence of the scriptures in which they delighted and of which they talked so much. Very well, he says, take the scriptures in which you think that you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. Now, this is obviously a very vital and all-important matter. You notice that our Lord later on puts it like this in verse 45. He says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if he believe not his writings, how shall he believe my word? In other words, what he's saying to them is this, that if they persist in their unbelief, if they continue to fail to see that he is what he claims to be, the Son of God and the Savior of their souls, and that if they die like that, he himself will not rise up against them in the judgment. But he says, the scriptures that you boast of will. 
Moses, especially in his writings, they'll confront you in the judgment. For they, he says, wrote of me and spoke of me. They, all of them, point together to me. So that here again they're all together without excuse. But come, we are not simply concerned, as I've been indicating, in considering the case of these Jews who lived nearly 2,000 years ago. We are concerned about ourselves. Are you saved? I mean by that. Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know God as your father? And when you're in trouble and you want to pray, do you know how to meet him and how to find him? Are you afraid of death or are you ready to meet it? Have you contemplated the judgment? And can you say that you're not afraid of it? That's what it means to be saved. Are you saved? Do you know this great and eternal God? Has he put his divine life within you? That's what it means to be saved. Well, you see, the only way whereby those things can happen is that we know and believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God and that he came into this world to save us, not only by living the life he lived, but supremely by going voluntarily to that death on the cross and taking our sins upon him and bearing their punishment in order that we might be reconciled to God. That's the question. But it all comes back initially, you see, to this. Do we believe in him? Do we really know that the Son of God has been in this life and in this world and that he came in order to save us? For as our Lord told these Jews, I can say to you this evening, that if we do not believe, this evidence will rise up against us also. We cannot plead an ignorance because we have the scriptures. Well now then, let's follow the argument. When our Lord says here, search the scriptures, what is he referring to? Well, of course, he's referring only to the Old Testament scriptures. There wasn't a single book of the New Testament in existence when the Lord uttered these words. He is referring solely and exclusively to the Old Testament and no more. The New Testament didn't come into being until several years later. The first apostles and other preachers preached without anything of our New Testament. They had none of the Gospels. They had the book of the Acts of the Apostles. They had none of the Epistles. There was no New Testament. So when they talk about the Scriptures, they mean the Old Testament only. And what our Lord is therefore saying is this, that the Old Testament alone is, is sufficient to leave us without excuse. That what we need and what is essential to our salvation is even in the Old Testament. Without coming to the new at all. They are they, he says, which testify of me. Now then, let us observe how this uh, statement, this kind of statement that our Lord made on this occasion, 
is something that is made very, very frequently in the New Testament, and therefore it must be of very great importance. Take, for instance, that 24th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, which I read to you at the beginning. And I only read one portion of it still. Earlier our Lord had said very much the same thing to the two disciples that went in their disconsolate mood and state on their journey to Emmaus. What does he say? Well, he says this. What are you surprised about? Why are you surprised that I was crucified and that I died on the tree? and that they buried my body in a grave, but that I've come out of the grave in the body, and that I'm now in this room speaking to you. Why are you amazed, or what are you wondering at? Why are you astonished? Why do you think that I'm a ghost? He says, why is it that you didn't understand your Old Testament, your scriptures? So he went on to tell them that what has been happening is nothing but a verification of what is to be seen in the book of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. And then he took them through the scriptures just to teach them that the whole of the Old Testament was really just pointing on to him and teaching them about him. There's one wonderful instance of it. But it isn't the only one. Take that other remarkable instance I read to you. The typical preaching of the Apostle Paul. You notice how it's put. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them in the synagogue, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scripture. That's the sort of preacher the Apostle Paul was. He expounded the Scriptures, you see. Didn't talk about the possible bus strike or things like that. Or didn't make uh, his... Uh, remarks and give his pompous opinions as to how the international disputes can all be settled. That wasn't the sort of preacher the Apostle Paul was. Of course not. He wasn't an authority on things like that, and no other preacher is. But a preacher should know something about the Scriptures. So he went in and reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. But you see, he always did that. You go to 1 Corinthians 15, and there you'll find him saying this. Now he says, I want to remind you of the things that I said to you first of all when I came to you. What did he tell them? Well, he said how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And how that he was buried according to the scriptures. And how he rose the third day according to the scriptures. Everything's according to the scriptures. Oh, I say it's found everywhere. Listen to the apostle uh, saying it uh, again to his uh, young disciple and follower, Timothy. He was writing to Timothy and he says a thing like this to him. Timothy, he says, I know something about your background. Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now when Paul there talks about the holy scriptures, he means nothing but the Old Testament. And he says that these Old Testament scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. But this isn't confined to Paul. Peter says the same thing. He says that the prophets spoke of old about these things. He says they didn't understand how or when these things were to happen. When they spoke before of the sufferings of Christ 
and the glory that should follow. He's referring to the prophet. And then you remember that other notable instance in Peter's second epistle. Last Sunday night I was quoting to you 2 Peter 1.16, in which Peter said, We have not preached unto you cunningly devised fables, when we declared unto you the glory and the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we were with him, he says, on the holy mount, and we heard that voice from the excellent glory saying, This is my beloved Son. Remember that, says Peter. We were eyewitnesses of his glory, of his majesty. And we heard the voice of God speaking from heaven. That, says Peter. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. To which ye do well that ye pay heed, as unto a light in a dark place, until the day star arise in your hearts. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the prophecies of the Old Testament. He says, look here, if you don't believe me, go back and read your Old Testament prophets. And there you'll see that they prophesied concerning the very things which I've been preaching to you. The word of prophecy made sure, verified, come to pass in Jesus Christ and in his story. Hold on to that, says Peter. If you don't believe me, hold on to that. It's a wonderful thing that, he says, it's like a light in a dark place. You're going through a cavern and you see nothing. Suddenly somebody gives you a candle and light. That's it. Hold on to it. The prophecies of the Old Testament. These prophecies, he says, which have not come from the mind of men alone, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Well, now then, I've quoted all that in order to demonstrate this point. That this is something to which the New Testament attaches the very greatest possible significance. Now then, here is the position. These Jews, they had their Old Testament scriptures. They were very fond of them. They were always reading them. And as our Lord says, you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, the way they said that was wrong, but in a sense they were right, as I'm going to show you. But in spite of having them, and in spite of their contents, when they're confronted by him, they don't believe him. They say he's a blasphemer. They say he's going against the will of God, that he's breaking the Sabbath, that he's a man who should be got rid of. They hated him, and they plotted eventually to kill him. Though they had their scripture. And that is why he says to them, the very scriptures in which you boast will rise up against you and will condemn you, for these things speak of me. Isn't this a terrible thing and an alarming thing? You see, the case of these Jews is a case of self-deception. They thought they knew. They thought they were experts on their scriptures. And yet our Lord is proving that they're utterly ignorant of them, that they've missed their whole point, that they can't see the wood because of the trees, and that the very purport of the scriptures is entirely lost as far as they are concerned. Here they are, confident and bursting in the scriptures, and those very scriptures are going to appear against them on the dread day of judgment and leave them speechless, without a word to extenuate their offense. My dear friends, it is because, as I say, there are so many like that still that I'm calling your attention to this matter. What does it tell us? Well, it tells us something like this. First and foremost, obviously, the scriptures 
can be grievously and terribly misused. That's obvious, isn't it? But let me tell you of some of the ways in which that can happen. Why were these Jews in this deplorable position? Well, there are many answers to the question. I'm merely noting them. Here's one. They thought that the mere fact that they possessed the scriptures at all, in and of itself automatically saved them. Ah, they said, we are the Jews, and we have got the oracles of God. Ah, those Gentiles, they're dogs, they're beyond the pale. Why? Well, they haven't got the scriptures. They haven't got the oracles of God. God hasn't revealed and manifested himself to them. We have the scriptures. And they thought that the mere fact that they possessed the scriptures, Somehow or another saved them. And you know there are people like that still. People who just believe that because, as it were, they possess a Bible, that that somehow or another puts them right. And that because they occasionally read it, that that somehow or another proves that they're Christians. But it doesn't. In other words, my second point would be this, that these Jews also thought that their general acquaintance with the scriptures somehow or another saved them. And there are many who think that because they have a certain familiarity with the scriptures, that somehow or another that does duty for righteousness, and somehow or another that makes them Christians, and puts them right in the sight of God. They'd got this general acquaintance. There was no question at all about that. But you see, that isn't enough. Well, why? What was the trouble with them? Well, here's the third point, and a much more serious one. Much more important. The real trouble with these Jews was that instead of listening to the Scriptures, they hoisted their ideas onto the Scriptures. That's the thing that our Lord keeps on saying about them. You see, the Pharisees had arisen, and they had their interpretations of the Scriptures. And then there were interpretations of their interpretations. There were these authorities, and the Jews at the time of our Lord used to spend their time in quoting authorities against one another, as lawyers are given to doing at the present time. This constant wrangling, quoting authorities. And while they were quoting their authorities, they missed the whole point of the Scripture. These traditions of the elders that we read about, that's what they were. And these had become more important than the word, and these interpretations were feisted on top of the word. That's the whole argument of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, he says, by them of old time, or you've heard it said by the elders, but I say unto you. They have been feisting their own prejudices unto the Scripture. That's not something that has seized either, is it? If you go to this book with a theory in your mind, you can prove anything you like. It's such a big book. It's got so many statements in it. That is why all sorts of cults and strange beliefs all claim that they believe the Scripture. But you see, what they do is this. They start with a theory, then they go to the book, and then they put an emphasis here and take it off there and slide over certain other things. If you go with your prejudice, Why, you can make the scriptures teach anything you like. And people from time to time have tried to do so. But they've never seen the truth of the scripture. And the Jews have been guilty of that, feisting their prejudice upon it. Then another one, of course, was that these Jews misinterpreted and misunderstood the teaching of the scripture in this way. 
They concentrated so much upon the letter that they missed the spirit. Now they were very expert on the letter. That's what our Lord again keeps on saying in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, they came and they looked at the letter. Now take the familiar instances that he gives. Take this question of murder. They said, oh, well, now, if I haven't actually murdered a man, I'm not guilty of murder. Wait a minute, says Christ. That's the letter. What of the spirit? If you say about another man in your heart, thou fool, you're guilty of murder. Ah, oh, they said then about adultery. Oh, I never actually committed adultery. I'm all right. Wait a minute, says Christ. That's the letter. What of the spirit? Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust hath already committed adultery with her in his heart. It isn't the letter. It's the spirit. The Apostle Paul takes this thing up in writing to the Corinthians, his second epistle, chapter 3. The letter killeth, he says, the spirit giveth life. He says, here are my fellow countrymen, the Jews. They read Moses. They read the Old Testament every Sunday, but they don't see the point. Why? There's a veil over their eyes, he says, a veil over their hearts. Though they go into their synagogues, though they're always reading it and interpreting it, they don't see it. It's the letter they've got hold of. They've missed the spirit. And still men and women are doing that with the Bible. And then this other point that I believe is emphasized here, it's a tremendously important one. They didn't search the scriptures. You can read them without searching them. But the only way to arrive at the truth, says our Lord, is to search them. And oh, how this needs to be emphasized at this present time. So often people argue, and then you see in the argument they quote a scripture and they reveal at once that they've never really searched the scriptures. Let me give you one random illustration in passing. I remember once having a discussion with a man, and he was a great believer in the social activities of the church. He thought that what was needed was much more social activities in churches, and then things would happen. He seemed to be oblivious of the fact that that had been tried very extensively and had led to nothing. However, apart from that, what I was interested in was his particular argument. He was trying to prove to me that uh, this idea of uh, the social aspect was uh, so scriptural. I said, well, now, what's your evidence? Well, he said, didn't the Lord Jesus Christ give a tea party? I said, on what occasion did he do that? He said, when he fed the 5,000. I said, was that a tea party? Yes, he said. Well, then I said, wait a minute, let's go and see exactly what we are told in the scriptures about the feeding of the 5,000. I said, now you tell me that that, our Lord did that in the way that you think we should have tea parties. He did, he, he was sure it was that. So we just went to the scriptures together. And to his utter amazement and astonishment, he found that what had happened was this was not that our Lord suddenly had the idea it would be a good thing to give the people a tea party but that our Lord had been preaching and these poor people had been following him and were so hanging upon his words and so listening to him that he said they're tired and they're weary, they must be hungry, they must be on the point of collapse, we must do something about feeding them. You see, it had nothing to do with the tea party at all. It was just our Lord's heart of compassion for these people who'd followed him so many days and who hadn't even had an opportunity of eating at all. It wasn't a social occasion. It wasn't giving them a treat. 
But you see, the man thought that he knew the scriptures. He was quoting scriptures to me. He was going to prove his point. Let's say this for him. He was a very honest man. He admitted he'd never known that before. Why? Well, you see, he hadn't searched the scriptures. You know, just to know an occasional tag or two out of the scriptures doesn't mean that you know them. You know the favorite arguments that are trotted out. Everybody knows about Cain, and especially Cain's wife. Ah, they know the scriptures, and out they bring the argument. And the only answer to that is it's to take them back to the scriptures. Make them search them. Now, my dear friend, what I'm trying to say to you is this. You may say to me, well, now, I don't believe in your gospel of salvation through Christ's death. I believe in God, and I think that I'm a Christian. But I think that a man is a Christian who decides to live a good life. And a man who does good, and a man who sets out imitating Christ's example. And that's my Christianity. I don't believe in this bloodshedding, and in this cross, and in this laying of sins and God's wrath. I don't believe in that, says the man. And I, I read my Bible. I don't find that sort of thing there. Well, my only reply to such a man is this. Search the scriptures. Read them. Study them. Get down to them. Be immersed in them. And then perhaps you'll find that your conception of Christianity is not the biblical conception of Christianity. You see, the tragedy of this present time is this, that men are mixing philosophy with the Bible. They're putting their ideas into it, what they think. They say, I can't believe that a God of love can be a God of wrath at the same time. And because they can't believe it, they say it isn't true. And then you say, but what are the scriptures? Ah, oh, well, yes, of course. And so they twist the scriptures. They are speaking and not allowing the scriptures to speak to them. They don't search the scriptures. So that finally I put it like this. That the real trouble with these Jews was that their whole spirit was wrong. They were self-confident and self-assured. They came to it with what they regarded as their knowledge. Their expert knowledge of the expositions of the elders and the quoting of the authorities. And so the word of God was made of none effect, says Christ, through your traditions. That's what he said. You make the word of God, he says, of none effect at all through your traditions. And surely that's the whole trouble at the present time. Men and women don't come to this book as little children. They don't come in a spirit of humility. They say, we are 20th century men. We come with all the advantages of the latest scientific discoveries. We come with our great knowledge of philosophy and of education. And in the light of all this, Instead of coming on their knees to this book, they looked down upon it, and they cut out this and cut out that. Some of them would cut out the entire Old Testament. The very thing which Christ says speaks of him and leads to salvation, if a man really searches it and understands it. My dear friend, if the Old Testament hasn't brought you to know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, and thereby has given you salvation, I say it is probably because your spirit is wrong. You think you know, as these people thought they knew, and they didn't listen to the message. They didn't submit and subject themselves to it. There are some, at any rate of the ways, in which men misuse the scriptures. But come, let me come to my positive. If that is something of the way in which a man can misuse the scriptures, how is it that the scriptures, really, to use the words of Paul, can make us wise 
unto salvation. Now he says, Timothy, I know your background. You've always been trained in these things. You've always known the, the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, which can make thee wise unto salvation. How do they do so? Why should these Jews have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ on the instruction of their own Old Testament scriptures? Here is the answer. The Old Testament scriptures show the need of salvation. They make us wise unto salvation in the first place by showing us our dread and our terrible need of salvation. How do they do that? I'm only giving you headings this evening. Here's the first. They reveal God in his majesty, his greatness, his holiness. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know that's enough in and of itself. That's only the first verse in the first book of the Bible. That ought to be enough in and of itself to crush us all to our knees. God, the creator. Illimitable in his power. Oh, yes, but that's the God we sit down in comfortable chairs and argue about. And express our opinions about him. You see, we haven't learned the lesson of the Old Testament. Genesis 1.1 ought to be enough to put us flat on the earth, licking the dust, crying out for mercy. In the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. But not only his greatness, his majesty, his holiness, his glory... His hatred of sin, doesn't it come out everywhere in the Old Testament? He'd made Adam and Eve, yes, but when they sinned against him and disobeyed, he turned them out of the garden. He drove them out, this holy God who hates and detests sin. It's revealed in the Old Testament. And that goes on right through the book from beginning to end. He made this nation of Israel for himself. He brought them into being by his miraculous act. And yet, though they are his own people, he punished them. He sent them away into the captivity of Babylon. He chastised them. He hates sin, even in his own people. That's the message of the Old Testament. But it's not only there in the history, it's there in those great books of Moses about the giving of the law. Have you studied the Ten Commandments? I, the Lord thy God, am a holy God. Thou shalt have no other gods beside me. And it doesn't matter what you put there, it mustn't be put by the side of him. God is a just and a jealous God. He'll tolerate no other. There is no rival to him. He is the only God. That's Old Testament. And so he goes on telling us how we must worship him and not make a graven image of him. How we must honor his day. How we must honor our father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And so on. This is a revelation of the holiness of God. Of God's attitude towards man. The Old Testament shows us that we are lost. God says, if you don't live this life, you are under condemnation. But it's not only the law, the prophets. 
What did the prophets teach? Well, their main message was this, that the foolish Jews must stop thinking that though, that because they took their burnt offerings and sacrifices to the temples, that all was well. They said, oh, it doesn't matter very much what you do. As long as having sinned, you take your burnt offering and sacrifice, everything's going to be all right. And the prophets thundered one after another. Don't put your faith in things like that. The Lord takes no delight, they said, in that kind of offering. He wants obedience. He wants holiness. He wants truth. So they denounced this fatal reliance upon burnt offerings and sacrifices. And they called the nation to repentance. They warned them that if they didn't repent, that God would punish them. Read your Old Testament, my friends. And every time you'll discover this holy God expressing his abhorrence of sin. And calling men and women to repentance and to a returning unto him. The Old Testament scriptures taught that. But thank God they didn't stop at that. The Old Testament not only shows men that he's a desperate and a vile and a hopeless sinner. They showed him how God himself is going to provide a way to save him and to deliver him. Thank God it's always there. God doesn't merely condemn. He condemns in order to save. He condemns and then he gives his promise. And what our Lord is saying here is this, that running right through the Old Testament from beginning to end is this amazing promise concerning himself. He says, search them, for they are they which testify of me. Is this true? Have you found Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? As you've read your Old Testament, remember he says, Moses, prophets, and Psalms. Do you see him everywhere? He says, I am there everywhere. They wrote of me. They're all testifying of me. Do you know, a man who doesn't find the gospel in the Old Testament doesn't know it. He doesn't find it in the New either. Because our Lord says it's in the Old. The old, the scriptures that are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Let me give you some examples before I close. Listen to some. I'm merely choosing but a few at random of the direct promises and prophecies concerning the coming of the Son of God. The first, you know, was actually given in the Garden of Eden when God came down to men and women in sin. He certainly pronounced judgment upon them. He said, because of what you've done, you've got to learn you're living henceforth by the sweat of your brow. You've got to go out of this garden and you've got to work and labor. He pronounced his judgment upon them. But he gave the promise. He said, because of your folly, you're going to be under the heel, under the power of this serpent that has led you astray. And there will be a warfare between his seed and yours. But it's all right, he said. I tell you now that the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. He, the serpent, shall bruise his heel, but he, the seed of the woman, shall bruise the serpent's head. That's Jesus Christ, my friend. Jesus Christ was not born in ordinary wedlock. He's not the son of a man. He's the seed of the woman, the woman only. And he did bruise the serpent's head, yes, but it meant that his heel was also bruised. 
He was wounded. He died. But he rose again. There it is. Genesis 3.15. And then listen to the promise to Abraham. God said it's all right Abraham. I'm going to bless the whole world. Through you and through your seed. Your seed. Seed of Abraham. He said the same thing to Jacob. He promised him that a Shiloh was going to arise out of the tribe of Judah. Not one of the other tribes but Judah. And he is. Born of Judah, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Moses was given the promise, A prophet like unto thee shall arise from among thy brethren. And the Jews from that moment began to look for and to wait for this prophet. Eventually he came, Jesus Christ, and they didn't recognize him. But here is the prophecy given to Moses. It was given to David. David was promised that his seed should reign forever on the throne of Israel. And he is reigning on it. Jesus, son of David. Do you remember the blind men shouting out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. He was perfectly right. He is the seed of David and the son of David. Look at him in the Psalms. Look at him in the second Psalm. The Lord said unto my Lord, Look at it in Psalm 110. It's everywhere. Look at it in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Why? Why should they feel comforted? Well, I'll tell you why. Some great one is going to come. Send the forerunner to prepare his way. Let every valley be exalted and every high mountain and hill be brought low. Let the rough places be made smooth. Why is it? He's coming. The whole, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The Son of God is coming. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. There it is again, and in Malachi, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. It's all about him. Ah, but you say, I've read those books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and I'm lost with all these burnt offerings and sacrifices. What are they about? They're about him. They're just indications of what he's going to do. They are but illustrations. They're adumbrations. They're shadows. They're but types. He is the fulfillment. They're all pointing to him. Why was that lamb slain on the night when Israel went out of Egypt? Why were they told to take the lamb and kill him and paint his blood upon the lintels and the doorpost? Why? Oh, it's just pointing out to the lamb of God that's going to come that shall take away the sins of the whole world. It's all about him. He is the lamb of God. My dear friends, I could literally keep you here till midnight had I the strength and the voice to do so. Showing you that he's everywhere in this Old Testament. Listen to some of the details. When is this deliverer, this son of God, going to come into this world? Read the ninth chapter of Daniel's prophecy. And you'll be able to work it out to the exact time at which he came. Where is he going to be born? He's going to be born in Bethlehem, says Micah. And so you remember that when he was born and the wise men came to Herod. And asked him, where is this king? Herod said, let's see what my wise men say as to where this king is to be born. And they came back and said, he is to be born in Bethlehem. And he was. Micah had said it centuries before. 
What kind of life is he going to live when he comes? Is he going to be a great king, a great monarch, a great military leader? No, no. He is going to be a servant. He is going to be one whose visage is marred. He is going to be like a root out of a dry ground. He is going to be a suffering servant, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. He was that. It was all foretold eight centuries before he came. Did you know that the Old Testament even tells us beforehand that he was going to ride into Jerusalem just before his death on the fall of an ass on which no man had ever sat before? It's all there. Did you know that the Old Testament had told us centuries before it happened that Judas was going to sell him for 30 pieces of silver? Not 40, not 50, not 10, not 20. 30 pieces, the exact number. Did you know that the Old Testament had prophesied that he was going to die by crucifixion? The Jews didn't crucify a man. They stoned him to death. It was the Romans who crucified. And yet centuries before it was prophesied he was going to die by crucifixion. Psalm 22 tells you all about it. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It tells you about his thirst, about his agony. About the vinegar. Do you know these Old Testament prophecies tell us that they were going to part his garments amongst themselves and divide his robe? Do you know that they said that not a bone of him would be broken, but that his side would be pierced by a spear? It's all there. Did you know that even in Isaiah 53 we are told that when he had died upon the cross, that his body would be taken down and that it would be buried in a rich man's grave. Read Isaiah 53, search it, and you'll find it prophesied it and it came to pass. He was buried in the grave of a rich man called Joseph of Arimathea. It's all there. They are they which testify of me. And then his resurrection and ascension and the glory that were to follow. My dear friends, it's all there in the Old Testament. It all points to him. It all tells us that he is the Son of God. What's its lesson? It's this. The business of the Old Testament is to lead us to Christ. It hasn't got salvation in and of itself. It shows us our need of it. It shows us how we can never make it for ourselves, but that he is coming to give it. The law was our schoolmaster, says Paul, to bring us to Christ. Has it brought you to Christ, my friend? That's the question. Have you seen your sin? Have you felt the condemnation? Have you realized you can never save yourself? Have you believed the message that the Son of God came into the world in order, as he says, that you might be saved? Oh, one thing matters. It is just this, that we search the Scriptures. Leave your theories and your pet ideas for a moment. Come back and read them and search them. The old is enough, but then go on to the new. Oh, I plead with you, instead of being like these unbelieving Jews, 
Be like these Bereans of whom we read. Do you remember? These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. They had open minds. They were ready to listen and search the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And then I read this, therefore, because they did that, many of them believed believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, became Christians, and so were saved. I am terrified at the thought, my dear friend, that if there is anybody in this congregation who doesn't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the incarnate Son of God, the eternal Son, the Word of God made flesh. If I'm speaking to someone who doesn't believe that, and who doesn't believe that he came in order to die for you on that cross that you might be reconciled to God, what I feel is so appalling is this. But if you go out of the world like that, that when you come to the day of judgment and see him, you'll have nothing to say for yourself. Look at the evidence that's against him. Look at the facts. The Old Testament alone is enough in and of itself. But you and I see it verified, fulfilled, carried out in the new. Oh, I beseech you, search the scriptures. Stop talking about the 20th century. It's utterly irrelevant. Forget all you know because it doesn't help you. But come with an open mind like the Bereans and search the scriptures. And you'll see him everywhere in the Old Testament as you see him dominating also the new. And having seen him fall at his feet and say, My Lord and my God, my Savior. Amen.